The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Today is Abraham Lincoln's birthday, February 12, 2010. The bicentennial hoopla is over, but the Lincoln world continues to turn. Today, we'll hear, as always, from the author of the most brilliant Lincoln book ever written, Did Lincoln Own Slaves? Another Frequently Asked Questions about Abraham Lincoln. And we'll also talk with the author of the groundbreaking book, The Age of Lincoln, and the editor of the new The Essential Lincoln. He's Orville Vernon Burton. He'll be with us today on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. Haiti has been hit hard by a deadly earthquake. Destruction is everywhere. Tens of thousands are feared dead and hundreds of thousands are homeless without food, water, and basic necessities. Save the Children is on the scene, but your support is urgently needed to help us save lives. Please give as much as you can now. Call 1-800-SAVE-THE-CHILDREN or go online at savethechildren.org. You can even donate $10 right now by texting the word SAVE from your cell phone to 20222. Please give now. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. Today is February 12th, 2010, the anniversary of the birth of Abraham Lincoln, the 201st anniversary, and we'll be talking about that today. Uh, but first, a reminder that although I am here at East Carolina, not speaking on behalf of the university, rather just for myself, and our guest today will certainly do likewise. It is not only the uh, birthday of Abraham Lincoln, but a day of unseasonable, uh, if, not to say downright bizarre weather, snow covers the uh, southern part of the United States, not North Carolina where we are. It's gray and clear, but uh, the real south, down to South Carolina and Georgia, they've got snow. They're, they're doubtless in a panic. Maybe we'll learn some more about that today uh, from our guest. But in the meantime, all is well here in uh, in Greenville, where uh, things are relatively quiet. Um, the uh, Lincoln uh, and Civil War news that we sometimes share at the beginning of the, the show will move past, except for a reminder, uh, as before, that there is a current movement to put yet another, uh, yet another movement, I should say, to put a casino on the battlefield at Gettysburg. If you are, uh, as many of us are, opposed to this idea, uh, please consider uh, 
registering your opposition. There's a website, uh, the name of which is not in front of me at this moment, unfortunately, but uh, No Casino Gettysburg is in the web name. If you Google that phrase, I'm sure you'll get right to it, and you can find out what's going on going on there. Uh, thanks, as always, to everyone who has uh, contributed to the show and our book fund over the last uh, several weeks. If you're interested in doing that, the address on PayPal is uh, civilwartr at aol.com. And if you do contribute $15 or more, I'll be happy to send you a copy of Did Lincoln Own Slaves or All for the Regiment, the Army of the Ohio, 1861-62, as you wish. The uh, contributions are not tax deductible. Uh, I cannot tell a lie. That is a fact. Well, it is now 2010. The bicentennial year was 2009, but uh, Abraham Lincoln remains in the news uh, and certainly on the bookshelves. Uh, and we are fortunate to have today as our guest, uh, author of one of the most innovative Lincoln books in the last uh, decade or so. Uh, our guest today is Professor Vernon Burton. Vernon, are you there? I am, Jerry. Good to hear from you. Well, good to hear from you. You're, are you in South Carolina at this moment? Yes, I'm sitting in my office at Coastal Carolina University at this moment and wondering if the snow is coming and should I drive up to 96 South Carolina, my home, this evening. Well, you know, if there is snow, the, the, your, your state will be in a complete panic, I understand. They aren't used to it now. On Tuesday morning, I dug out of several feet of snow to get a car out to get to the airport in Illinois, which was quite common. This would be nothing, but here they just aren't prepared for it. Yeah, and, and not unreasonably, you wouldn't expect to have a fleet of salt trucks or uh, plows just hanging around for an event that happens every 10 or 15 years, uh, so uh, not surprising. But uh, nonetheless, uh, ex-Northerners, uh, anyone who's lived in the North at any time like yourself or like me, uh, uh, we can feel smug when we watch people skidding off the road. The, that's the problem with the other drivers. But, you know, this sort of questions my judgment, too, Jerry, for someone who for 34 years was a historian of the American South and lived in Urbana, Illinois, taught at the University of Illinois, write a book about Lincoln, become a Lincoln scholar, and then move to South Carolina. So I'm not sure what my judgment would be about driving in this or not. <laughs> well, that, that's an interesting uh, way of going about things. Well, I, I mentioned uh, in the introduction the bicentennial year is over, and I thought I'd start with that and ask your, your thoughts about the, uh, the, the bicentennial year that has just passed. Uh, did it accomplish anything? Did it? Uh, what's your view of, of what's going on? I thought it really did, Jerry, and I think that we were very fortunate to have a congressional commission uh, uh, that both uh, Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois, uh, Ray LaHood, was one of the co-chairs uh, until he um, uh, became Secretary of Transportation and had the conflict of interest about the executive branch, and then uh, Congressman Jesse Jackson was on the commission. Uh, they did a great job, and they hired the most phenomenal executive director, who was Eileen Makovich, and I think they reached out in ways that these sorts of centennials and bicentennials have not before. And one of their legacies is the uh, website, the Abraham Lincoln Bicentennial Commission website, which will continue with a foundation. Uh, and there we're trying to make it a sort of an honest broker to bring all the different Lincoln communities together. 
as well as make it a place for education, particularly for teachers at different levels, can use it in the classrooms. It's just been a flurry of um, of Lincoln um, commemorations, of lectures at different places, and despite the bad budgets of states, most of the states tried to do something significant about Lincoln. I've been very pleased, and I thought it was of, of a very high quality in terms of it. And I hope that it will be a, a impetus or a drive now for the Civil War sesquicentennial, which is coming up. I mean, it follows right after this. It, it does, and we'll, we'll be seeing a lot of that uh, certainly starting uh, next year with the 150th anniversary of Fort Sumter and then uh, uh, following day by day. Of course, when the, the Civil War centennial took place in the 1960s, that was definitely the impetus for a, a lot of uh, public interest as well as uh, scholarship. Uh, so you, you think the same thing could happen this time around? I, I do, and one of the things I like to do is compare that centennial of what we saw with Lincoln. It, it was amazing because during the centennial you had a you had a number of things going on. You had, in fact, of course, the whole um, uh, Berlin Wall phenomena, the Cold War, and there was a lot that was made relevant at that time. But the interesting thing is basically African Americans were left out of, um, of the Civil War in, in the 1960 commemoration, and race and African Americans have been central to the Lincoln Bicentennial, and I believe they will be again for the sesquicentennial of the Civil War, just to show you how the literature that got stimulated uh, in the 1960s with the commemoration there has led us to a different place and a different understanding uh, of how we looked at the Civil War uh, now 50 years ago as we do now. Now, the uh, the centennial, I I was uh, too young to participate directly. Uh, I lived through it, but I was... Uh, uh, still in diapers for a good part of it, but I do um, uh, know that, that there was a lot of public interest and things that grew out of it, uh, some some movies, some TV shows, and uh, uh, in particular, dear to my memory, was the the, uh, the book that Bruce Catton wrote and was illustrated, uh, the, the American Heritage History of the Civil yes, War. Yes, wonderful book, and, and all of Bruce Catton's work, I... I Highly recommend, and actually, I tell graduate students to read Bruce Catton and Shelby Foote together, and you get a really pretty good balanced view of the Civil War. You do. You get you get the two perspectives, and and while uh, I, I find reading Bruce Catton takes me fifty pages to get used to it again. It's such a different style, and, and, yes. and so rich. But one, once I'm into it, then I don't want to get out, uh, uh, and I, I'll devour the whole whole thing all over again. Uh, but that certainly was a, a great book. There was a children's version of it as well. Um, there were were toys, there were games, there were uh, said movies and TV shows. There were a lot of things to grab the public's attention. Um, what about, uh, again, this time around, both Lincoln and, and the Civil War? Do you see this getting the public involved as well as changing the scholarly landscape? I, I believe, and I think the public was to a large degree involved in some ways with the Lincoln Bicentennial, maybe not as much as we would have liked. And I think part of that was the economic downturn that went at the same time. But, you know, I, I really think people are always interested in Lincoln because Lincoln is about who we are uh, in many ways. In the Civil War, scholars and the general public, I think, look to the Civil War to try to discover the identity 
of uh, the American identity, and I think that will continue to interest us as well. But the Civil War really catches the the uh, imagination of the general public in so many ways. Uh, it's it, it, not just because it was, I think, the uh, most bloody war, and up until really Vietnam, I guess all wars added together, we had more American casualties, northern and southern. Uh, as a civil war, but it also dealt with this critical question of what is the place of African Americans in American society. I think you can read that larger and say uh, as a question, what is the place of people who are perceived as different in a democracy or a republic? So I think we're going to continue to just always be fascinated by the civil war, the deeper meanings, as well as the incredible acts of heroism uh, the military history, which is so complex and rich, and which you've done a great job with in your work, uh, understanding how this the war was won. And as we, you know, I can remember from the 60s, when, even when I went to graduate school to work with Jim McPherson on the uh, Civil War, no one was talking about contingency. It was uh, just assumed that there was no way that the uh, Confederacy could have won. And, of course, Vietnam taught us just about how an under-resourced nation uh, can win, and since then we've looked at all these contingency areas and times where the Confederacy came so close to winning. So when you think about this, I think we're going to have an exciting burst of literature that will come out on on the Civil War, and I hope it will be tied to Lincoln because uh, the Civil War changes. One of the things I worry about is that the, the Civil War is seen as so static, and it changes from year to year what this war begins as and what it ends as, we forget, too, uh, what I would like to talk about, the long Civil War, that Reconstruction, I think, needs to be considered part of the Civil War. I'm convinced that people saw it as such. I found men who had not fought in the Civil War at all, as we understand it, 1861 to 1865, but had ridden in the South under former Confederate generals in 1876, 1878, and still applied to their states uh, Civil War pensions argue that they were part of the Civil War. And I think this is a another area really, we really need to look at as scholars and as a general public. I wonder if that will be the next big area. One th- I've noticed, uh, looking at the people who've been on this show lately, that there have been a lot of books in the last year or two about guerrilla warfare, about insurgency during the Civil War. And uh, again, I wonder, you, you made the apt comparison uh, of how the experience in Vietnam helped Americans revisit the Civil War and the possibility of the Confederacy winning because, as you say, an under-resourced nation can can do so in some circumstances. Uh, do you think contemporary events may be underlying this, this renewed interest in, in Missouri, Kentucky, uh, uh, and, and, and many states where guerrilla war took place? I think it may be, and and as we are looking at the sort of uh, uh, religious aspects of of our war with jihadists and uh, uh, other ways, I think we're going to reconsider religion and the place of religion, um, and it's changing over time in the Civil War. It's something I, I have been fascinated with, and I think that it's going to be the general public, as, as uh, scholars have finally discovered, that religion actually matters. I mean, I've never understood why why scholars never thought that religion was important. It's the only thing people give their lives for. They'd give up water, sleep, food, even sex for it. We didn't pay attention to it as motivating people, and yet I think that's going to be important as we're seeing it today in our own time. Um, 
So I think that'll be another area that, that scholars are going to be fascinated with, and I think the general public will be interested in as well. I th- that that I would agree. I think is a, a really fascinating topic because, as you say, one doesn't have to read too many uh, letter collections or diaries from the war to understand how uh, powerful religion was in the lives of many of the soldiers, and yet it, it was not until recently taken particularly seriously by a lot of scholars. I think that is starting to change. Have you, can you have you read anything that that uh, that you like in that department? Uh, or do you foresee anything coming out in that direction? I, I do. I've seen a lot of younger scholars who are fascinated. I did a Pew program uh, one summer at Notre Dame where I taught a group of young scholars. And uh, so many of them, uh, as you might expect, were, were fascinated uh, by by religion. But you can see it in one of the students, uh, Die Hard Rebels, uh, uh, comes out, has has a great deal of sort of insight into religion there. And you can look at these studies even uh, on death in the Civil War. There's a good bit of that with Drew Faust. Uh, and I think you're going to see a lot of other books that are, are going to be developed that way. Uh, um, religion, I think, was was well done in the recent Abe Lincoln, uh, a. Lincoln uh, biography. Uh, so I think we're going to see it in the Civil War. Uh, you know, we've known about the revivals that were going on, but both at, on the home front and uh, among the soldiers, um, as their whole ideas of religion uh, changes. You know, uh, Martin Knoll has written about the theological crisis of the Civil War. I've argued that, in fact, there was a theological crisis for both the North and the white Southerners, but uh, not among African Americans because Reconstruction was seen as God's punishment of those pharaohs of the South and sort of the fulfilling of the millennium. So I think we're going to see a lot more understanding of how people looked at dying, why, in fact, men would go off to fight, why women would send their men off to fight and die in a war. And so much of it is is the worldview of that time was understood through religion. You mentioned earlier Reconstruction as well, and that I... Suspected for some time might be the next big area. It's it's not as popular. It seems to me it's not as easy to sell books about Reconstruction because there's not the easy uh, uh, what sort of it's not easy to romanticize certainly as some some do with the Civil War, and it may be harder to uh, to come away with a good feeling about the outcome as one. Uh, conceivably can do with the Civil War if you focus on the end of slavery and the saving of the Union. Uh, but do you see, what, what do you see coming down the pike in terms of Reconstruction scholarship? Well, I, I think you put your, well, there's a number of things, of course. I actually think we're going to reconsider uh, Reconstruction quite a bit, uh, whereas historians have done away with the myth of the happy slave and sort of the gone with the wind, birth of a nation view. We still see sort of Reconstruction as this flawed period of which it could not have possibly succeeded, and particularly, I think there's still a general view that these uh, northern carpetbaggers, venal carpetbaggers, came down to rule the sort of prostate South uh, along with Turner trade coats, native white Southerners with a terrible name, the label you can't even say it, let it roll off your tongue to make you sick. Scalawags, and then these ignorant former 
slaves. And we, we now know that's really a myth, but it hasn't crossed over yet. And I think that, as I found in the age of Lincoln, there were certainly pockets of where interracial democracy were really working and were thriving, but somehow the history has been, been turned back that we haven't looked at at this period. And I'm often asked about what would have happened if Lincoln had lived. I think we have not been able to put contingency in Reconstruction like we have in the Civil War. And yet there is actually military battles going on during Reconstruction. I find rather fascinating for military historians uh, could study and look at as well. But particularly how, in fact, race relations were developing, the economics, you have the the same sort of problems we have today might spur interest in, in Reconstruction. You were moving uh, from that Civil War period from an agricultural base to a manufacturing base. And today, of course, we're moving from manufacturing to knowledge base, people being left behind. We have our own sort of big recession. There was what was really called the Great Depression that started much earlier, about 1873, in the South that rolls into the 1890s uh, there. So I think all of those things are going to have people interested in Reconstruction. Well, I, I think you're absolutely right. the military involved that. in civil affairs and the military, uh, the Union military in the South, so I think that's going to be of interest. You have the same kind of problem we have today of nation building, of occupation. But I'm, I'm going to take a little break here. We're going to interrupt just for a moment. We'll take a short break, come right back on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Few questions are asked more often than what would have happened if Lincoln had lived. We'll explore this with our guest, Vernon Burton, when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Haiti has been hit hard by a deadly earthquake. Destruction is everywhere. Tens of thousands are feared dead and hundreds of thousands are homeless without food, water, and basic necessities. Save the Children is on the scene, but your support is urgently needed to help us save lives. Please give as much as you can now. Call 1-800-SAVE-THE-CHILDREN or go online at savethechildren.org. You can even donate $10 right now by texting the word SAVE from your cell phone to 20222. Please give now. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with the author of The Age of Lincoln, Vernon Burton. We've been talking about the revival of interest in the Reconstruction era, about the recent, uh, recently ended Lincoln bicentennial year and the approaching uh, Civil War sesquicentennial and many other topics. If you missed the first segment, you'll have to go back and reload and listen to that as well. Um, Vernon, we, we were talking about a lot of things that might uh, spur interest in Reconstruction uh, at the end of the last segment, and one that you mentioned was a question that I'm sure you've heard many times. I know I have uh, 
is the question about Lincoln's assassination and, and if he had lived, how that would have changed Reconstruction. What's your take on that? Well, I have a I have a decidedly point of view, and, and it should be you know clarified that it's, it's an interpretation or what I would call someone who's worked as an expert witness as totality of circumstances. But, Jerry, it's a great example to talk about contingency. When I'm asked that, I've often pointed out that Abraham Lincoln was asked to be at South Carolina on Fort Sumter to raise the flag, uh, you know, exactly four years to the day it was struck um, in 1861 uh, uh, and would have been at Fort Sumter. And he would have been with Robert Smalls, the Civil War hero, instead of at Forest Theater. Smalls had actually met with Lincoln for over an hour. This is the black Civil War hero who stole the planter. And when Lincoln asked him why he had risked his life, and actually his family, and his um, um, not only his family but all the other soldiers, he gave him a one-word answer, and that was uh, freedom, which Lincoln then, of course, echoes a year later in the Gettysburg Address. Well, the, the short part of the answer to this is that I actually think that it's one of these contingency points that if Lincoln had been in Fort Sumter, he was convinced not to go by others who thought it would be too dangerous to be in South Carolina, but he would have been with Smalls on the planter. I think the bodyguards would have been very careful to make sure nothing would happen because they were expecting instead of at Forest Theater. So that would have made a huge, huge difference, I think, um, um, at that time. Uh you know, we'll never know what Lincoln, the difference would have been, but I believe that Lincoln was moving uh, and continuing to move to support black rights. Uh, Lincoln was uh, assassinated not for the emancipation, but because of his support, even though limited, of black voting. In fact, his last speech that was given that John Wilkes Booth heard uh uh, when Lincoln gives it from the bedroom window, he turns to his his uh, colleague and says it'll be the last speech he makes. He's talking about, he doesn't say black, but in other word, citizenship. And he was not crazy. He understood where Lincoln was going. And just like with the Emancipation Proclamation, I think Lincoln was preparing the rest of the country for black citizenship. And I think he was committed to it. Uh, you can look at his letter to Springfield to be read and others to give an example of what he was doing. And I'm convinced that after the war, he was had enough gravitas. He was Father Abraham. They would have followed through. And I'm convinced of this. He believed in the rule of law so much that he would not have allowed these terrorist paramilitary groups to have overthrown a legitimate interracial government. So that much I am convinced of. And I think we'd have a very different race relations. I'm not as sure what would have happened in other areas, particularly in terms of capitalism, because he was committed to capitalism and uh, the sort of unfettered, unrestrained capitalism that developed after the Civil War. But on race relations, I feel that we'd have had a much better relationship. This is a little bit different interpretation for those who see, you know, his malice toward none, toward white Southerners. Uh, I'm convinced that with that speech, he was really talking to yeomen and others, but those who had, in fact, um, initiated and carried on that war, that he would have made certain that uh, at least African Americans who had fought for the Union were accepted as citizens. I, I would certainly agree with you on the point that he would not have tolerated the uh, attempts to, to overthrow legitimate state governments in the South. And I would, I would add to that, not only was it his respect for the rule of law, but uh, people often overlook the fact that Lincoln, as a Republican, had a very different 
self-interest than uh, Andrew Johnson, the Democrat. And, and he of really course wanted Lincoln. to build a Republican Party and thought he could, I think, mm-hmm. in the South, and, uh, among Whigs. You might remember he actually had wanted to ask uh, Alexander Stevenson, who becomes vice president of the Confederacy, to be in his cabinet, thinking he could build this coalition of, uh, of uh, old Whigs and others and Unionists in the South into a Republican Party, or at least a new party. Let me touch on the question, the other thing you mentioned, which uh, your book, The Age of Lincoln, it, among other things that makes it different from a lot of uh, books on the subject, is it's not just about Lincoln, but but as the title says, his age, which you define as really the whole 19th century. Uh, and Lincoln's economic views, uh, as you say, were, were very much in favor of capitalism and the right to rise, the equality of opportunity. But the world was changing, and the world Lincoln grew up in, in which a log cabin birth didn't stop you from pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, becoming a lawyer, uh, maybe becoming a president, uh, is about to be supplanted by the the age of uh, Andrew Carnegie and J.P. Morgan, and uh, an age when, when economic inequality is so great that not every log cabin boy can, can imagine rising up. Uh, how would Lincoln have dealt with that change? Yeah, and that's what I'm not quite as certain as. As you know, his son, Robert Todd, uh, who is actually a self-made millionaire, uh, Robert Todd Lincoln, and also goes on to be president of the Pullman uh, Railroad Company. He was their attorney, uh, certainly supported this sort of capitalism. I, and I know that Lincoln always felt that he owed things to people like the who built the railroad because they helped him win the Civil War. Uh, I don't know. I'd like to think, though, his sense of fair play and opportunity would have come into play there. But it's very hard to know. That one I'm not as certain about as I am on the race relations. Uh, I'd like to think that his sense of fair play, that people should be rewarded by their hard work, would have come in. And we have some instances, certainly, of his being supportive of labor always. But there's that other side, too, of, um, of his belief that people should be rewarded for the kind of things they did, like the railroads helping him win the war. So I just don't know, Jerry. That's a tough one. I go back and forth on it. I'd be interested in your view. Well, I, I, I agree it's a very tough question. I think uh, Lincoln's uh, – m- much of what Lincoln believes in in terms of race relations uh, is based on this equality of opportunity, that everyone, black or white, is entitled to keep what they've earned by the sweat of their brow. But as as the economy changes, as, as the industrialization of the century goes forward, and, and individuals uh, can work 11 hours a day in a steel mill and never hope to rise, uh, that old model of, 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 of moving up, of, of upward mobility that distinguishes the north from the south, uh, starts to fall apart. I, I guess I share I'll, I share your your not knowing. Uh, it, it really is impossible to say. There's a side that you can always say with Lincoln that I liked about. You never see him sort of sitting with the the saints. He's always identifies with the sinners, and I see the same thing about fair play. Uh, you see it over and over again in his whole life, and I would like to think that would have been there. But I can also see another side too. Uh, but I think he had to believe, his belief in democracy, Lincoln understood what a lot of us still today don't grasp, that democracy can go forward or it can retrench and go backwards. And for it to go forward, he believed this was tied in with opportunity that someone like himself, born in a, in a, uh, with a dirt floor and a cabin, could 
reach middle class or even higher by hard work. And certainly he believed that people should be rewarded for their work. That was, that's clear. And I think it would have been better in that regard in terms of his commitment to that. I, I, I think he might have been pretty good at balancing uh, the needs of a, of a growing country and capitalism with, in fact, the protection of labor and the rewards for labor at the same time. But that's, that's, I have less evidence for that, and that's an optimistic view, but that's where I'd like to come down. Now, you just edited uh, a book last year called The Essential Lincoln, a collection of, of some of Lincoln's speeches and correspondence. It's a, a nice, compact book, uh, not, not the giant uh, collection of everything Lincoln said or did. Uh, the first thing I thought when I saw this uh, on the shelf was, how would you make the choice? How would you get the essential Lincoln into? Uh, let's take a look at the back here. We're talking 30, about thirty documents. Uh, I was I was asked documents. to select the thirty most, at least important, or documents that show Lincoln's change over time in areas, and and that was a hard thing to do. And, and for this audience, it may be a little disappointed. I did leave out most of the military, in the sense of. Uh, his dealing with his generals and others, and that was a tough choice because I had several I would have liked to have put in. Uh, but I, I found it absolutely maybe the hardest job I've ever had. Uh, and I think in doing this, though, I think I've read everything that Lincoln has ever written that we know of. I mean, there's always other things, and some we aren't as sure of in making these selections. And it was challenging, and I did want Lincoln's word to speak for themselves. And what one of the things, Jerry, since we're both educators that I am fascinated with, and uh, I hope this is not too much of a digression, but uh, two of them particularly struck me. Lincoln's very first public statement. He's a young man. He's been in New Salem just a few months. He's 21 or 22, I guess, at the time. And he runs for office. And in that running for office, he singles out education as the single most important thing, and he'd like to do something about it. And then again, I looked at the famous Milwaukee, Wisconsin speech where he takes on James Henry Hammond, the senator from South Carolina, uh, what is called the mud seal theory, that every, every, it's like society is, is like a fence, and the, everybody has to have a bottom rail, and that's the mud rail, and in the South, slavery took care of that, so whites could all be more or less um, uh, on top. Uh, and Lincoln addresses that, and people have always looked at that address as his defense of free labor. And they're right, it is, but it's also, if you look at it very carefully, something that you and I as teaching in college really care about. It is a defense and an explanation of how education is critical for democracy and free labor to work. And he makes that great statement about, you know, people would, would rather have a horse blind on a treadmill uh, so he can't kick understandingly, but God made man with both a head and a hand, and he intended the head to direct the hands, and education is essential to democracy. So that was just two. I mean, I have two on education, which shows my own opinion, but something I think is worth those of us as educators need to point to as Lincoln's critical belief, who had so little formal education, the essential importance of education in a democracy and for democracy to really work. Now, one of the things that I noticed when I was looking again at your selection of 30 documents, uh, before I even opened it, I thought, I wonder if he has this one in here. And you do. Uh, the letter to Fannie McCulloch, uh, oh, yes. 1962. 
uh, how did you you felt that could not be left out? I did, and it was tough because my editor and I went a few rounds on that one. Is why would you do this? But I saw it was Lincoln explaining to this daughter of someone he had known uh, about the death and how horrible death is in the war. And I think it explained. I thought it caught Lincoln at a at a special time there as we did it. One I hated to leave out that got left out that I think I would have wanted to put in was the Springfield farewell speech too. I think it speaks to Lincoln and and uh, God and his his views as well. But this one also caught, I felt, the idea of Lincoln and the tragedy of the war and trying to make sense of it. Uh, and, of course, his own, the death of his own children uh, at that time and what he was feeling. So that's that's one I, I fought to keep in. And it was it short. One of, that was one thing. It is short, and it is one of those beautiful things and, and touching things that Lincoln wrote, this, this letter of consolation to the, the young girl. The uh, Now, on the other hand, he had, known, you also he have, had known her fathers, I remember. That's right. In, in Illinois and uh, trying to give some explanation. Now, you also have here the letter, uh, the famous letter to Horace Greeley that Lincoln wrote before issuing the Emancipation Proclamation. And that letter, the the, the one, uh, I'm sure most listeners are familiar with it, where, where Lincoln says, if I could uh, save the Union by freeing the slaves, I would do that. If I could save them by not freeing the slaves, I would do that. That letter is often quoted by people who make the argument Lincoln had no interest in ending slavery. He did it purely as an instrument to save the Union, but it wasn't close to his heart. Uh, why did you include that? I think you're, you're exactly right, and this gives me a chance to explain why I think Lincoln, in fact, was moving toward black citizenship and was preparing the nation for it. I see that letter very differently. First, they quote that part, and uh, my good friend Lerone Bennett is probably the best example of, of using this as Lincoln's racism and really not caring about African Americans. But they never cite, of course, the last sentence, which says, my own personal view is that there should never be slavery. I'm against slavery. Lincoln was always anti-slavery, as best I can tell. Never an abolitionist, but always against slavery. And he says, this is my official view as I see it. Now, the interesting thing about this letter is, it's a reply to Horace Greeley's uh, editorial, which was a prayer of 20 million that Lincoln emancipate the slaves. And, of course, he does what he says he would do. He, you know, if if I could uh, uh, free them all and it would win the war, I would. If I could free part and not others, I would. Or, or if I could win the war and preserve the Union and not free any, I would. And he sort of um, frees some and not others with the Emancipation Proclamation. But his critical movement and a shift in the high ground of the war as he brings the sort of moral issue of freedom and as he redefines it with the Gettysburg Address later so beautifully uh, that the rest of the world shifts from support for the Confederacy or leaning that way toward the Union. But the most interesting thing is this. Lincoln had already written the Emancipation Proclamation. He already had it. He'd been convinced to wait until he had a, a more opportune time with Antietam to give it. So why didn't he just write back and say, Horace, you're absolutely right, and guess what? I have already written the Emancipation Proclamation. We're going to do just what you want, because Lincoln was a political genius, I'm convinced. I mean, we talk about what a great campaign that Obama ran and what a great skilled politician Bill Clinton was, but I'm convinced Lincoln could have drank their milkshakes. Believe me, he was once again trying to bring the nation to where he was on emancipation, using the newspapers, using the preachers, using all those 
old grannies that Sherman complained about that Lincoln spent so much time with, the women and others, to bring them to where he had already come. And I think he's doing exactly the same thing, Jerry, at the end of the war as he's writing the governor uh, in in uh, Louisiana and others trying to get them to move, as he did as such a skilled politician, to get toward black citizenship and uh, rights. And, of course, it's the one thing we see him so committed to. He actually says that this is going to be the greatest thing in the 19th century. I disagree with him, as you know, and argues his redefining of personal liberty and putting the, the Declaration of Independence into the Constitution. But he sees it that important. And then he thinks it's so important you have to have a 13th Amendment because this is only a military measure that could be moved backwards. And he pushes as hard for that 13th Amendment. Anything and critical to it. So that's why I put the letter in. I think it's a superb example, maybe the best, of Lincoln's craftiness, his skill as a politician, his measure of the country, and trying to gently bring them to where he is. And then people, the ones who quote it, still don't quite get it. That's right. Our listeners get it, and we'll take a break and get more of this when we return in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio. Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. The last decade has seen an explosion of scholarship on Abraham Lincoln. What's the best book to read out of all the recent Lincoln books? We'll ask our guest Vernon Burton when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. Love old cars and want to know more about them? Thinking about investing in your dream car but don't know if it's a smart decision? Want to fix up that classic that's just rotting away in your garage but don't know how to get started? You need Resto Talk. Every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific, Melvin Benziquin, the restoration expert, will address these topics and more and invite prestigious guests from the automotive industry to answer all of your questions and provide you with great quality information. Get your motor started with Resto Talk on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. I'm talking today with Vernon Burton, who is, among many other uh, productions, the editor of a slim volume called The Essential Lincoln, Speeches and Correspondence, in which uh, Vernon has narrowed down to 30 uh, the list of Lincoln documents, uh, speeches, or or letters uh, worth having. That's not fair to say. There are many more than that are worth having, but uh, the top 30. And I'll tell you, I, uh, I've i got the set of Basler on the shelves here. I've got the whole Lincoln collection. You can get Lincoln online. But 
this book is irresistible, uh, even even with uh, many of our listeners, I'm sure, having books of Lincoln documents that, that dwarf this and have all the contents in it. There's something about this, uh, the, the synergy of, of reading one after another of these that, that are familiar yet uh, 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 sometimes not so familiar. Uh, I as a reformed lawyer, I liked that you included notes for a law lecture from 1859. The uh, and let me ask what what uh, what was it about that particular piece, the uh, the law lecture notes? Oh, the law, I, I love that fragment there. I, I really do. That uh, the and they've done such a great job at Springfield, uh, uh, Daniel Stoll and his crew of tracking down and identifying these things of Lincoln and where they were and where they came from. It is just amazing. And that tells you, I think, the nature of Lincoln. Uh, my wife and I actually wrote a play on Lincoln in one of his trials. And it really does capture, I think, it's for one thing, we think of Lincoln as the Civil War, uh, you know, the commander-in-chief of the Civil War. And yet Lincoln, you see in that letter, is a compromiser. He believe, I mean, his beau ideal, of course, is uh, Henry Clay, the great compromiser. And he's saying to people, don't, uh, don't go to court if you can help it settle things. And I think that went into his political life, too, which is one of the ironies. Uh, that's the great, uh, the great statement about don't charge too much. Uh, and I think it gets this essential Lincoln with his moral values trying to explain what's important about his profession. And he says, if you can't do this, don't be a lawyer. Do something else well. Um, but I, I really like it, and I've never run into attorneys who don't like it either. I think it's a good statement. It, it is. It's really uh, it, his knowledge of human nature. It says don't don't accept a retainer. It's human nature not to work as hard for something once you've been paid for it, uh, if you've been paid in advance. And, and you know, we've all encountered that. What a great uh, observation. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, as I said in the, the break there, there have been – just uh, an explosion of, of books on Lincoln, really since maybe 1990, uh, the last 20 years, uh, exploring all kinds of new angles. What comes to mind as the, the best handful of, of, of books, other than your own or my own, uh, in the last few decades? I do really love your, decades. I love, and I've recommended, I've given it as gifts, actually, about <laughs> Lincoln on slaves here. If somebody wants a good overview of this, and, you know, I even think graduate students benefit from it, even though it's written for the general public. Uh, so I, I will give a plug for you there. I, I well, really thank you. done a magnificent job there. It covers so well in the literature, too. But it is tough. As you know, Lincoln is the most written about American, and he's only behind Jesus Christ and Shakespeare. And I think if you just add up the number of books I've been asked to review in the last two years on Lincoln, that Shakespeare has reason to worry about his number two place. <laughs> Uh, there's so many, and I know I'll make a lot of enemies by leaving them out, but we often forget that, that the Civil War is actually won on the battlefield. And uh, I was a little surprised, but uh, pleased, that Jim McPherson's new book on Lincoln as Commander-in-Chief uh, gives us a different perspective, because I think we have to understand that the Civil War ultimately Whatever we look back, it, it is one on the battlefield. So I think that's important, and I'm blanking. I'm really ashamed of the title and, and also the author that does uh, Lincoln uh, as naval. Oh, Man. Craig Simons. Uh, yeah, yeah, and I, and I actually thought that both of those are important, and we too often don't realize how important military history is. 
in terms particularly of the Civil War, where we've gone. Uh, I was in graduate school with Ron White, and I really enjoyed his A. Lincoln. Uh, I thought it was important. There were several books. There were several good books. But Harold Holzer's book on the interim, that is when Lincoln is elected and when he uh, gets to be president, I think helps us understand Lincoln in a different way, that he's not just sitting there but working behind the scenes, that he's saying that, you know, we're going to hold tight, we must hold now, we cannot give on this idea of slavery because it will come later if we do. I thought that was interesting as well, and Catherine Clinton's uh take on Mary Todd, I think it's been interesting, the bad rap that Mary Todd has gotten from us men over the years. Mm-hmm. But, you know, starting with James G. Randall's wife and then uh, uh, with uh, Baker's biography of Mary Todd, which I like very much, and Catherine Clinton, I think it gives us uh, some good perspectives as, as well. Uh, I, I am a little surprised how many, uh, the, the change in in the view of Lincoln among African Americans, from in fact the great emancipator to the great white honky, uh, and and I think that's understandable in some ways. But when I was a young boy growing up in '96 South Carolina, there were several African American homes that had a picture of Abraham Lincoln on the wall. You don't see that uh, as much uh, anymore. And in fact, there was a session on my book, The Age of Lincoln, uh, at the African American Studies Life in History conference, and you could just see it that no scholar who was African-American younger than I was could say anything good about Lincoln, and those my age and older had trouble trying to go that direction at all. So that's uh, um, uh, been a little disappointing. You caught a little bit of that with uh, Skip Gates, uh, Henry Louis Gates' documentary, I think it was called Searching for Lincoln, mm-hmm. sort of relationship there. And I've been surprised we haven't had more in terms of, of Lincoln and race uh, dealing with these issues, because, and that's partly what I, w- I was trying to do, and I saw it with Smalls and others and Frederick Douglass. I think, you know, we've got how many books dealing with uh, uh, Frederick Douglass and Lincoln, all of which I enjoyed, but I would like to see some other work dealing with Lincoln and other African Americans like Robert Smalls, uh, which influenced his thinking in, in so many ways. Well, that's a good point. You mentioned earlier Lerone Bennett, whose book uh, really sort of led the charge against Lincoln. Right, I think his article was maybe 1969, about that time, and then forced into glory about 2000. That's right. And, and it's really, and you know, we don't have time, but I have in different lectures. I think I can take each of his major points, like the Emancipation Proclamation we discussed, colonization, or um, and I'm blank. Oh, the Lincoln-Douglas debates. And I think you can see them from a different perspective in each case, and the way he's argued them. Uh, but I think that has really caught on among people, uh, particularly African Americans. Uh, and I'm, I sort of hope with President Obama's identification with Lincoln, or at least the press is uh, suggesting the identification, though clearly Obama does look to Lincoln in a lot of ways, and even put his campaign, you know, by staging it from Springfield, um, where Lincoln was and made this identification, that maybe there'll be a more balance to understand that, of course, Lincoln is flawed. Uh, but like um, um, all flawed people, he has to be understood in his context and time. And it's a hard thing to explain. I was interviewed last year, in fact, for USA Today, and I spent about two hours explaining that Lincoln, of course, was racist, but less so than others of his general, and grew tremendously, and as a politician, moved the other way. And when USA quoted him, it was one sentence that says at that time, you know, former University of Illinois professor says Lincoln racist. 
Well, I did. I was trying to say so was everybody else. He was a lot less, and you cannot understand Lincoln's racism unless you put him in the context of his major opponent, Stephen Douglas, who was arguing for clear-out white supremacy. And, of course, southern Illinois uh, was settled so much by southerners, two kinds of southerners, those like Tom Lincoln, Abe's father, who hated slavery and wanted to get away from slavery, but much more by those who hated African Americans and wanted to get away from black people. So it was in that context that he functions as a fairly successful politician. It has to be understood in that context. Well, I think uh, you know, balance is a key word you use there because the uh, uh, I, I could join you in, in refuting point by point much of what uh, Lerone Bennett uh, has written about Lincoln. And it seems to me uh, what what he did there was provide a counterpoint because there are scholars who, who over the last uh, two centuries have romanticized Lincoln and, and, and uh, excused or whitewashed some of the things Lincoln said that we don't agree with today. But uh, Bennett just goes in the other direction so far, uh, the pendulum swings so far. It's a useful counterbalance but it's equally out of whack in the other direction. Yeah, I think and, you're right. Uh, it's almost as Lincoln was born an abolitionist. He was never an abolitionist. And no. To me, it's a more powerful story, again, about Lincoln's credible, flexible mind that when he met other evidence, he evaluated and changed his mind. Today we look at flip-flopper as a bad thing, but I'm glad he flip-flopped on race. I'm glad <laughs> that he decided that evidence when he met with Frederick Douglass, with Robert Smalls, with Harriet Tubman, with Sojourner Truth, convinced him that he was wrong and that he would change his ideas and move forward and help the country move forward on them. To me, that's a greater story than this man was just always this uh, non-racist abolitionist. No, the, the uh, Lincoln's pragmatism, uh, I mean, his ability to grow, but also his, his flexibility, uh, uh, you know, his famous saying, my policy is to have no policy. Uh, it, it's something that does distinguish from, from modern political terminology, where, as you say, flip-flopping is, is a bad thing, changing your mind is a bad thing. Uh, but for Lincoln, he, he frequently uh, adopted his course to fit circumstances. That's right. He was a politician, a successful politician. People often talk about, I mean, when I was a boy, we talked about all the elections that Lincoln lost. Well, Lincoln was very proud. That first election where I talked about where he announced he just moved to Spring, moved to New Salem and was young, and said it was central for education. He wanted to do something about it, the greatest uh, thing to do anything about. He lost that election, but he was very proud that he never lost another election where the people themselves actually voted. And we now look at the Lincoln-Douglas uh, debate, of course, uh, in that election he lost for the Senate. And if you had uh, what we have now with the Voting Rights Act and one person, one vote, Lincoln would have won because it was voted for in the in the legislature itself, not by the people. But if you add up and see where the people were and how the people voted, made a difference. So he was very, very good politician in terms of reaching out to the people and getting their support. Well, he certainly was that. Um, the music I hear tells me that, astonishingly, we've already reached the end of our hour. So uh, we have, have to stop here. But, Vernon, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you, and I really enjoy your show. You do such a great job, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk about Lincoln, especially with you. Well, it's a pleasure to do it. And, listeners, you'll get pleasure in reading The Essential Lincoln by Orville Vernon Burton. Thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 